0: Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles tonight to Romans chapter ten. We started a few weeks ago a series that we uh, we've entitled "God's Attitude Toward Healing," and uh, we're looking at some uh, different points from some different uh, uh, angles about uh, what the Bible says and and what the Bible reveals to us about God's attitude toward sickness and and more importantly His attitude toward healing. And uh, we've talked about a number of different things tonight. I want to talk to you about the Bible definition of salvation, the, the, the language itself that the Bible uses and that the Holy Ghost chose to use in describing salvation shows God's attitude towards sickness and disease and his, shows his attitude and his willingness to heal. Romans chapter 10, um, well, let's start in verse 8 and we'll read down through verse 10. It says, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. Paul called his preaching the word of faith. Now, I know a lot of people don't like to hear that because they speak of the so-called word of faith in a disparaging way, but that's what Paul called his gospel. Verse 9, he says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 9 tells us how to get saved. To confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus or Jesus as your Lord and to believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Those two pillars, those two criteria, once met, will enable any person on the face of the earth, no matter what their past is, no matter what they've done, no matter what they haven't done, no matter what, to be saved. Now, I want you to notice the word saved in verse 9. The word saved in verse 9 and is used uh, to, and translated saved a number of different times in the, throughout the New Testament in the Greek language, is the word sozo, S-O-Z-O. Let me read it to you. Let me read from Strong's the definition of what this word. It says, uh, the definition of the word sozo is to save, such as deliver or protect, literally or figuratively, to heal, to preserve, to do well, to be made whole. Now, this same word sozo is used in some other places that we might be familiar with. One is in Acts chapter 14, where it talks about Paul ministering in uh, Lystra, it says, hold it, hold it, hold it. I'll get there. I'll get there. Acts chapter 14, verse 9. Well, let's back up to verse 8. Well, let's back up to verse 7. And there they preached the gospel in Lystra. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed. This word healed in verse 9 is the word sozo. Paul perceived that by the preaching of the gospel, the man received faith to be healed. Or we might say it this way, faith to be saved. Now this is the same word that's translated saved over in James chapter 5 and verse 15 where it says, giving instruction to the sick it says is any sick among you let him call for the elders of the church and let them the elders pray over them anointing with all in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith shall save the sick it's the word sozo for save what does it mean it means to heal let me give you some other examples um, Luke chapter 8 and verse 50 Talking about Jairus' daughter. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. So, so. Another example is in Mark chapter 5, verse 23. Here's, a, here's Mark's account of Jairus' daughter's situation. He besought him greatly. Jairus besought Jesus greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth, lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed. Sozo. And that she shall live. Another example, and we can take as, many, take as much time to go through these as you like, because there's plenty of them. Luke chapter 8, verse 36. This is talking about the madman of Gadara after he was uh, delivered from the power of the devil and the devil cast out of him. It said, speaking of those that witnessed it, they also which saw it told them by what means he that was possessed of the devils was healed. Sozo. Concerning the woman with issue of blood, both Matthew and Mark. Tell us about it. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith has made thee whole, sozo. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Same things in Mark chapter 5 and verse 34. Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Time and time and time again, the Bible uses the same word for salvation or saved. Salvation is usually the word, uh, uh, when salvation is used in the Scripture, it's uh, usually the word soteria, which is similar to, it's a different tense of a, of a similar word. The word soteria means to save, to heal, to deliver. So there is a, a slight difference in the meaning of the word, but, uh, uh, but they're very similar. But anytime the word saved is used in the, in the New Testament, it's the word sozo. And it means an inclusive salvation. Paul said in, in Hebrews, and this is the word so, sozo as well, he said, how shall we escape, talking about the Old Testament, when Israel didn't receive the word of God delivered by angels, he said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's the word sozo. Neglect so great a salvation. In other words, an all-encompassing, an all-inclusive work of God that not only provides for the recreation or the redemption of the man, man's spirit and the forgiveness of sins, but also healing for the physical body. Now turn back with him in Mark chapter 2. Jesus, we should recognize this. We should know this just from uh, an honest reading of the Scripture. But it's hard to get some people to be honest when they read the Bible. But it says, beginning in verse 1, Mark chapter 2, verse 1, and again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. The American Standard Version, uh, well, I'm not sure if I've got the right, either American Standard Version or the Revised Standard Version, one of those two says that Jesus was in his house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born or carried of four others. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins are forgiven you. Now, folks, I've said this before, and I don't mean to be disrespectful about this, but I would venture to say they didn't come for the sins, their sins to be forgiven. I'm not saying they rejected it. I'm not saying they said, wait, 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 Jesus, we don't want any a part of that. But that's not their primary purpose, is it? They're bringing him to be healed. But Jesus knows something that they may not have known. He knows something that most of the church world today doesn't know, and that is... The same cause of sin is the cause of sickness. Romans 5.12 says, For by one man sin enters the world and death by sin. In other words, it's saying when Adam sinned and disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, it opened the door for spiritual death. Now, you don't sin because Adam sinned. You sin, talking about the unbeliever today, the unbeliever sins because he's ruled by spiritual death. It wasn't his sin that brought spiritual death upon him. It was Adam's sin. Adam's sin caused spiritual death to rule and and, uh, have dominion over all of mankind. It wasn't the individual sin. The Bible says we're born into sin. The whole world lieth in darkness. Why? Because spiritual death rules and reigns. The Bible says even further in Romans. It says, wherefore by one man's sin... Spiritual death entered the world and gained dominion. Adam's sin, not your sin, not my sin. I wasn't a sinner because or I wasn't unsaved because of my own sin. I was unsaved because spiritual death was ruling and dominating me. And I had no power to get out from under sin because I was spiritually dead. It's only after the spiritual death issue is dealt with. It's only after the original sin issue is dealt with that man can become free from the bondage of the enemy. So Jesus recognizes the reason that this man is crippled in Mark chapter 2. He realizes sin is the issue. Now Jesus knew something else that most of the church world hadn't figured out. And that is once you deal with the sin issue, healing is a given. That's why there was no sickness in the earth before Adam sinned because he was in the, made in the image of God. He had the life of God within him. There's no place for sickness because he's in right standing with God. So Jesus deals with the important issue first. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Well, that created a stir in the group. Another another, uh, gospel account says that the people that were filling the house were doctors of the law and Pharisees and so forth. Well, now they're all upset. There were certain of the scribes, Mark chapter 2, verse 6, but there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. That's a problem. Get unsaved people trying to think things out. That's why we've got some of the church doctrine we've got. And so here's what they reasoned. They said, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Folks, that's a great question. They're right about that. Nobody can forgive sins except God. What they're identifying is they don't believe who he is. And Jesus immediately perceived in his spirits they reasoned within themselves in this way. And he said unto them, why reason these things in your hearts? Which is easier? Whether it is easier, that means which is easier to say? To the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, I want you to notice, folks, we've got an answer for that. The modern day church has an answer for that. It's a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven. Now, the reason we think that is because Jesus commissioned us to go preach the gospel. Whosoever sins you remit, they're remitted. Whosoever sins you retain, they're retained. That doesn't mean you and I, as an individual, have a right to either forgive or withhold forgiveness for somebody's sins. It means very simply anybody that accepts. The preaching of the gospel that Jesus died as a substitute for man's sins, we can say to them, your sins are remitted. Not because of what we do, but because that's part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. All it takes is receiving the work of substitution that Jesus made and your sins are remitted. You're redeemed, in other words. Those sins are done away with. But if somebody rejects the preaching of the gospel and says, well, I don't want anything to do with that Jesus stuff, then we have every right to say, and I'm not saying that this is the way to go, but we have every right to say, in principle, then your sins are retained. In other words, sin has to be answered for. You can either accept what Jesus did as the answering for or the payment of sin, or you can answer for your own. Let me suggest option one. But that's what that means when jesus said whosoever sins you remit they're remitted and whosoever sins you retain they're retained that comes by the person the individual's choice to either accept or reject jesus So when jesus says Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk the modern day church would say well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven But what's the point jesus is making? He's saying it's the same work that provides for both now, what work is that? How does the remission of sins come? Well, as Jesus told the disciples, go and preach the gospel to every creature. When did he tell them that? After he paid the price on the cross for sin and sickness and when he was raised from the dead. That's not what they preached before he went to the cross. Before he went to the cross, they preached the Messiah is come. There's one by the name of Jesus. I'm sure you've heard about him and he's healing and delivering people all over the all over the place, and he sent us in his name to do the same works. That's what they preached before Jesus went to the cross. So what basis is Jesus forgiving this man's sin in Mark chapter 2? The fact that he was sent as the Messiah to do the work of God, culminating in the crucifixion and resurrection. But while he was here on the earth, he's acting in God's stead. He's acting on God's behalf to show God's willingness and his mercy and his intent towards sin and sickness. Well, what can we conclude from Jesus' response and Jesus' attitude toward this man's sin and sickness? God wants to deliver you from both. So what does Jesus do? Well, his question's still out there. They didn't answer it. The question is, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or arise, take up your bed and walk? Nobody would would dare to answer that. Now they're probably thinking, well, God uses some people to heal sickness. But only God himself can forgive sin. So nobody has the right on this earth, according to their thinking, according to their wrong doctrine. They thought that nobody had a right on the earth to forgive the sins of another man. Well, how does that forgiveness come? In their thinking and in their experience, only through the shedding of blood of the animals, the day of atonement. That's the only way. Jesus is now, and this is a very important point, Jesus is now, Mark chapter 2, at that point in time, Jesus is saying, I have the same power as the day of atonement sacrifice. Else how could he forgive sins? The only provision God has made for the forgiveness of sins up until that point is the yearly sacrifice, the annual sacrifice. One day a year, the bloodiest day of Israel's history. And it came year after year after year. For what purpose? To show the people that only through the shedding of blood could forgiveness of sin come. But because it's an impure animal, an earthly creature, it has to be repeated. Not so with Jesus. He shed precious blood, righteous blood, holy blood. So he entered one time to make an eternal redemption for us. So Jesus says, the question's still out there. He said, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk? Man, those rusty gears are working in the scribes' heads at that point. Jesus answers the question. He said, verse 10, but that you may know. Everybody say no. Therefore, what Jesus does in this case and in this example of healing is supposed to cause us to know something. I wish the church knew this. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Let me clear, let me, uh rephrase this to to make a point but that you may know that the son of man has the same power on the earth as the day of atonement sacrifice but that you may know that the son of man has the same power on God's behalf toward Israel as the lamb without spot or blemish that's kept up all year long for one purpose and one purpose only and that is for his blood to be spilled to make a day of atonement sacrifice. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up your bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. We never saw anything like this before. Now, what has Jesus done? From God's perspective, Jesus has proven. That he has the power to forgive sins. Now remember, this is not going to the cross. This man whose sins are forgiven and was healed still has to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior after the resurrection if he's going to make his way into heaven. This is a temporary work when Jesus was here on the earth. But notice the temporary work pointed to something that everybody understood, and that was the sacrifice, the Day of Atonement sacrifice. Is there any doubt or any question in any theological circle whatsoever that the day of atonement sacrifice pointed to Jesus at the cross? None. Nobody that believes in Jesus would dare question that the Old Testament ritual of the annual sacrifice is an example for us to see Jesus. It was superseded. It was replaced when Jesus went to the cross that's what Paul's ministry was all about and that's why he had so much trouble with the Jews because he's saying you don't have to keep the sacrifice anymore Jesus is it and the Jews, many of the Jews even those that had become Christians said well we've grown up with the law of Moses we can't turn loose of that yeah we'll accept Jesus and we'll believe that he's the son of God and he did miracles and all that kind of stuff but we still keep the law of Moses too don't we and Paul said no Jesus fulfilled it, he replaced it he was the substitute for this So what is this story showing us? It's showing us that the same price for sin is the price for sickness. What is that price? A sacrifice, an atonement. Now let's talk about that for a minute. In Exodus chapter 15, the Bible tells us about the Passover, when the Passover was instituted. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says Christ is our Passover sacrifice for us. No question in any theological circle whatsoever that the Passover is also a type of Jesus. Why? Because it was the shedding of blood to protect from the angel of death. What did the angel of death represent? It represents the judgment, the righteous judgment of God upon spiritually dead men and women. What kept that righteous judgment from coming on Israel? One and only one thing, and that was blood on the doorpost. The animal that was sacrificed and the blood that was applied to the doorpost. The doorpost signifies the, the door to your heart. That type is fulfilled when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. You accept his sacrifice on the cross. Make him the Lord of your life. And then we are, as the Bible says, washed in the blood of Jesus. What that means is that blood protects us from the righteous judgment that belongs to the spiritually dead. Now, part of the sacrifice or part of the Passover, I should say, was that when God was delivering Egypt, the original, the initial Passover... God was going to deliver Israel from Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, the very next day. It was after the death of the firstborn, the day after the death of the firstborn, that Pharaoh finally said, go, and we don't want to see you anymore. Get out of here. He turned them loose. God had prepared Moses in order to prepare Israel to be ready to go when he said, let them go. So Israel has borrowed, as the King James says, literally gone to their neighbors and demanded payment for 400 years of slavery spoiled the egyptians they're ready to go but part of the passover part of the the, um, the ritual of the passover was that not only was the lamb to be killed and so the blood was applied to the doorposts, but also the lamb was to be eaten every bit of it not one, one not one bit left over if the lamb was too big for one household and two households were supposed to get together so that nothing was left over They were instructed to eat all of it for the physical strength for their journey. Now, later on, after they're delivered from the bondage of Egypt, after they come through the Red Sea on dry land, they come to a place where the waters are bitter. And God tells Moses to take a tree, which signifies the cross, and throw it in the middle of the waters, and the waters were purified. And God makes an ordinance. He calls himself, he identifies himself by his first redemptive name, Redemptive name means part of what Adam lost in the garden of Eden through sin. That first redemptive name is Jehovah Rapha. First thing God identifies himself to the people as is Jehovah Rapha, which means I am the Lord that healeth thee. And according to the language, there's two ways you can look at it. Uh, Exodus 15 verse 26. He says, if you'll keep my commandments and keep my, and walk in my statutes, I'll allow none of the diseases of Egypt upon you, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. That word healeth is a, is a uh, present... Uh, is it, well, I'm getting my grammar mixed up. I think it's present part uh Whatever. It It's a, a present perfect. That's what I'm trying to think of. It's in present perfect term, which means it's not only a continuous action word, it also has a meaning to something that's already occurred. The Bible says... In the Psalms, it says that God brought them forth, brought Israel forth, anywhere from five to seven million people. He brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one sick or feeble person among them. How do you get seven million people together and not have sick people? How is that possible? I mean, folks, the law of averages is against that. Forget about the hand of God, the law of averages. You can't find seven million people at random and not have sick people. So when God says, I'm the Lord that healeth thee, he is probably, probably, can't prove it definitively, but he's probably not only saying, I'm the Lord that provides healing for you, I'm the Lord that heals you through the Passover. Now we've got some Bible evidence to, to support that. That was God's first revelation to Israel about who he is. He said, I am the Lord that healeth thee. I'm the one that did heal you. I'm the one that'll heal you every time you need it. It's a continuous action verb. Over in um, 2 Chronicles chapter 30, 765 years have gone by since the original Passover was instituted. Hezekiah is now king of Israel. Hezekiah is replacing some evil kings, and he wants to do right by God. And so he decides to tear down the idols and the groves and all the other stuff that the evil kings have been doing. And then he comes up with the idea... To reinstitute the Passover because Israel has been walking in disobedience to God. They haven't been keeping the Passover. They've forgotten some of the rituals. They've forgotten some of the, the annual feasts and things that they were supposed to be doing because all those things honored God and they weren't honoring God. So Hezekiah commands Israel, we're going to start this Passover thing again. And so he instructs the people to do it. He instructs, gives instruction back to the, the, um, uh, the law of Moses, the books of Moses. He has those read and proclaimed throughout Israel. He said, we're going to do it on the right day, on the day of the Passover. We're going to do this again. He starts it up again. The Bible says that there were certain ones that did it wrong. They didn't cleanse themselves. They didn't prepare themselves. And they still partook of the Passover. And I'm going to start reading here in Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 18, and 18, 19, and 20. Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, Good Lord, pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord of his fathers, though he may not be cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. Now, here's what happened 765 years after the Passover was instituted in Exodus chapter 15. And the Lord, this is 2 Chronicles 30 verse 20, and the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Oh, but Pastor Mike, that word healed just means to forgive. Well, actually, that word healed means to mend or cure. What I want you to see is Israel, 765 years after the Passover was instituted, Israel was healed in body through the partaking of the Passover. As I said, nobody argues. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ is our Passover sacrifice for us. Another example is back in uh, Leviticus chapter 14. Let me read a couple of scriptures real quick i'll just pull some out of out of their setting just for the sake of time leviticus, leviticus gives some instructions some specific instructions for the cleansing of those who had leprosy and other contagious uh, or communicable communicable diseases in leviticus chapter 14 verse 18 it says in the remnant of the oil that is, is in the priest's hand he shall pour upon the head of him that is to be cleansed and the priest shall make an atonement for him before the lord Notice what is to cleanse the leper, an atonement verse twenty, and the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the meat offering upon the altar, and the priest shall make an atonement for him, and he shall be clean verse twenty one and if he be poor and cannot get so much, then he shall take one lamb for a trespass offering to be waived to make an atonement for him, and one tenth of uh, one tenth deal of fine flour mixed with oil for a meat offering in a log bowl. chapter fifteen goes on to tell what happens or what should happen, the, the procedure for those that have an issue of blood and not leprosy. Oh, oh, Wait a minute, I skipped one. Before I get to chapter 15, let me read verse 31. And the priest shall make an atonement for him, this is still talking about the leper, for him that is to be cleansed before the Lord. Verse 53 it says, but he shall let go the living bird out of the city into the open fields and make an atonement for the house and it shall be clean. Now in chapter 15 with those that have an issue of blood like the woman in Mark chapter 5. Verse 15, and the priest shall offer them one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make an atonement before for him before the Lord for his issue. Verse 30, and the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for her before the Lord for the issue of her uncleanness. Now, let me ask you a question. Since every time the Bible talks about an atonement, it's talking about that which represents that ritual and operation of the old covenant that represents Jesus and was fulfilled by the cross of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Nobody argues that. Every denomination on the face of the earth, every religious group that believes in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, everybody accepts the fact and preaches the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament type of the atonement. If over and over and over again, the type of the atonement, meaning the shedding of blood, whether it's a lamb or whether it's a bird or whatever the different atonement methods were, it was always something regarding shedding of blood. You couldn't make an atonement without shedding blood. If the Old Testament type of the atonement, that the type of Jesus, provided healing, where in the world did the church get the idea that the fulfillment of the type Jesus literally shedding his blood to go into the cross doesn't do anything for the physical body. Are you out there? I want you to look with me over, or I'm going to turn to Leviticus chapter 25. I don't care if you look there or not. I'm going to pull some verses out of the setting again, just for the sake of time. The Bible talks about in Leviticus chapter 25 what the year of Jubilee is all about. The year of Jubilee was every 50 years, seven times seven years, which is 49, but that's the next one's 50. It's the way they counted. Every fiftieth year. The purpose for the year of Jubilee is for the forgiveness of everyone's debts. Everyone is restored back to his original possession. That's why nobody went in debt for anything more than 50 years at a time. Because it all reverted back. Now the year of Jubilee, every every denomination recognizes and every denomination agrees. Everybody that names the name of Jesus recognizes that the Old Testament type of the Jubilee is that which was fulfilled in Jesus beginning with his resurrection. It's a type of the restoration of what was lost to mankind. Just as Adam lost everything when he sinned in the Garden of Eden and spiritual death began to rule and reign over mankind, much more did the sacrifice of Jesus. Bring freedom, redemption from all that man lost. Now, here's how the year of Jubilee worked. I'm going to start in verse 8 and read down through about verse 10. It says, And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the Jubilee. Please get this. Here's how the day of Jubilee was announced. It was announced to the sounding or the blowing of a trumpet. This is a type of the preaching of the gospel. The trumpeting of what Jesus has done and accomplished. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the seventh day of the, oh, I'm sorry, the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of atonement. The year of Jubilee started on the day of atonement. But When? Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land and you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof and it shall be a jubilee unto you and you, here's an important phrase and you shall return every man unto his possession and you shall return every man unto his family. Anybody that's in debt is instantly freed. Now, when was the trumpet blown? This is the important issue. The trumpet was blown on the Day of Atonement, but not before the animal was sacrificed. It was after the sacrifice was made. It was after the forgiveness of sin type of the Old Testament was completed. Then the trumpet would sound on that 50th year. And the jubilee was proclaimed so that everyone was returned to their own possession. Now, this is what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 4 in Nazareth. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18, 19, and 20, Jesus said, He stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth and he, uh, he reads from Isaiah 61. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Well, what are you anointed to do, Jesus? To preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to, reach, to preach recovering of sight to the blind, and deliverance to the captives, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to proclaim or preach. The acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord is the year of Jubilee. And to preach or proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What is Jesus doing? He takes the book, the scrolls, and and gives them back to the ruler of the synagogue. Sits down and everybody's looking at him. What's he talking about? Proclaiming Jubilee. This is not the year of Jubilee. What's he talking about this stuff being anointed of the spirit of the Lord? And he's proclaiming the the acceptable year of the Lord, meaning the Jubilee. What's he doing this for? Jesus sits down and says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, folks, you got to understand the meaning when Jesus said this day, what Jesus is saying is this is talking about me. I'm here to fulfill that purpose. But when was the day of Jubilee? When did our Jubilee begin? Before or after Jesus was raised from the dead? After. His blood had to be shed. The day of atonement type wasn't fulfilled until Jesus offered himself on the cross. And then when he was raised from the dead, he is saying, he's telling us, here's what these things represent. Here's why I was sent to the earth to die for the sins of mankind, to redeem man from sin. And to provide healing for his physical body. That's what I'm anointed to do. I'm anointed to do it while I'm here on the earth to show God's intent, God's attitude toward breaking the power of the devil. But the eternal redemption will be obtained and will be completed. Once I offer myself on the cross, once I'm raised from the dead, then it's a perpetual period, not a day, not a year, but a per- perpetual period of returning man to his original possession, everything that he lost in Adam when Adam fell righteousness right standing before God that's what the new birth is about redemption from sin remission of sin means it's wiped away like it never happened everybody agrees that's through the cross no other way that can take place what else did Adam lose he lost well-being for his physical body we know that because that's the way that God identifies himself I am the Lord that healeth thee identified himself to Israel I'm the Lord that healeth thee I'm Jehovah Rapha So he's restoring physical healing for the body. What else did he restore to man? Everything that was lost. That's why Jesus said over and over and over again, all things are possible to him that believes. Why? Because once you come back into right standing with God through the finished work of Jesus, through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus' blood, the sky is the limit. You are restored to the same position as Adam was and Adam was made to have dominion on the earth. God's plan didn't change, but Adam's right standing with God changed when he sinned. So even though he was created to have dominion, now he doesn't have confidence or the help of God to, to exercise that dominion until Jesus was raised from the dead. That's why it was so easy for Jesus to delegate his power to the church. The church meaning those that had accepted him. Those that had accepted his sacrificial, his substitutionary sacrifice. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. You go into the earth. I'm going to heaven. You go to the earth. I'll take care of things on my end. You take care of things on your end. And whatever you call for requiring my name, I'll back you up and do it. Are you out there? Why do people argue with this? Well, some will say, oh, Pastor Mike, you're taking it too far. Yeah, the atonement, the Old Testament atonement is a type of Jesus, and Jesus fulfilled that. But the Old Testament atonement that Jesus fulfilled was not intended to provide for physical healing for everybody in every situation. Well, I guess we're going to have to look at the atonement chapter then to find out, aren't we? Look with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, everybody accepts every denomination, every religious group that believes in in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, accepts that Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus and his work, the work that he would do, because Isaiah writes this looking to the future Messiah. We look to the past work of the Messiah. But this is the work that Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would do. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The word sorrows is the word pains, other places in the Old Testament. The word griefs is the word sickness, other places in the Old Testament. I got to tell you, folks, this is just my opinion. I'm not responsible and I'm not their judge. But I believe this is the most cowardly uh, translation of any verse in Scripture. They knew what it meant. You can't not know what it means. But they refused to do it. King James translators refused. I guess it was so far into their doctrinal beliefs that they could not accept it. They had to search out alternative words to translate to make this sorrows and griefs. It's sickness and pains. He is despised and rejected a man, a man of sorrows, pains, literally, and acquainted with grief, sickness, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, verse four. Surely, I want you to notice something, folks. In the whole chapter that talks about the fulfillment of the Old Testament type of the atonement, the only time the word "surely" is, is used in verse is in verse four, and it's related to sickness and disease. It's related to healing, and not sin. It's almost like the Holy Ghost knew that the church would argue against it. Wouldn't that be a surprise? It's almost like God could see the future. Surely he has borne our grief, sicknesses, and carried our sorrows, pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Surely, I want you to notice what the Old Testament prophet is saying by the Holy Ghost. Surely, without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus took our pains and carried our sicknesses. No question about it, no sliver of a doubt, surely, truly, absolutely, without doubt. He has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgression. That's sin. He was bruised for our iniquities. The difference between sin and iniquities is one is yours, the other is Adam's. Jesus paid the price not only for your individual, your personal sins, but he also paid the price for the sin that opened the door to spiritual death to rule. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace. The word chastisement is the word punishment in some translations. The punishment... For our peace, our well-being. The word peace is the word shalom. It's also translated prosperity in certain places in the Old Testament. Not every time, not even the majority of times, but sometimes. It's uh, the word used in Psalm 35, verse 27. It says, the Lord delights in the prosperity of his servants. That's the word shalom. The chastisement, the punishment, the payment, the price, the ransom. For our well-being in every area was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Yeah, but that means spiritual healing. Folks, there is no such thing as spiritual healing. Oh, yeah, but Pastor Mike, you're you're misinterpreting the scripture. Because when you're born again, you're spiritually healed. No, when you're born again, you're made new. To heal something is to restore it from a disease or a, a deformed condition. That's not what happens to you spiritually. The Bible says God takes away the old heart, the old spirit, and puts a new one on the inside of you. Jeremiah 33 is real specific about that. Now, how does that happen? How does that work? I have no idea. It happens instantaneously enough to where you don't even miss a breath when you're born again. Because the Bible says the body without the spirit is dead. So if God took out your spirit and there was any any time delay, you'd die. But it's an instantaneous thing. Now, I have no way to explain that. I have no way to, to get into specifics or details or whatever. I don't know. I just believe what the Bible says about it. There's no such thing as spiritual healing. Oh, but you can be healed of memories. No, you can learn to forget them. Paul said one thing about his memories. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting that which is behind me, I press forward towards what's in front of me. And what I press forward towards is the high mark of the calling of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing the Bible ever tells you about your past, folks. Now, I know that's where a lot of people's hurt is. and I know that's where a lot of people's difficulties are because they're remembering things in their past and emotional issues and stuff like that. But the Bible says one and only one thing about your past, and that is forget it. Now, the fact that the Bible tells you to forget it means you can't. You may not be willing to do so yet, but you can. Oh, but Pastor Mike, you don't know what they've done to me. No, I don't know what they've done to you, but it may not be as bad as what they've done to me. And it wouldn't do either one of us any good to find out who's been done worse. Because the bottom line is the more you remember it and the more you focus on it, the more it'll hold you back. So you can do what the Bible says. You can forget your past no matter what it has been, no matter who did what, I don't care if they killed your dog. You can forget your past. Yeah, but I've had had loved ones that have done these things. Well, of course. That's why the past hurts. People that you don't care about that do stuff to you, you don't care. It's always the people that are close to you that hurt you. But you can forget if you want to. Or you can stay in prison for the rest of your life. Remembering how bad it hurts. Your call. Paul said by the Holy Ghost. This one thing I do. Forgetting that which is behind. I go forward. There is no such thing as spiritual healing. folks. None whatsoever. Healing is for the physical body. Let me make one last point. The Bible says Jesus obtained an eternal redemption for us. What does redemption entail? We know that Jesus paid the price as our substitute for sin. And as a result, he made us new creatures in him. You make Jesus the Lord of your life, he makes you a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus. He recreates your spirit and puts the love of God, the the life and the character and the nature of God on the inside of you. But is that the only thing that we're looking for in redemption? Is there any reparations? Or adjustments for the soul of man through redemption? Yeah, there is. How does it come? It comes through the Word. That's why God gave us His Word. Now, it doesn't come automatically like uh, the new birth does. But the Bible instructs us to renew our minds to the Word. That's a process. That's something that comes to applying, meditating in, and applying the Word of God, acting on the Word of God in our lives. We renew our minds to learn to think God's thoughts and operate according to God's ways. But man's a three-part being, isn't he? Spirit, soul, and body. Is there anything that Jesus did for us in redemption that pertains to the physical body? Yeah. I don't know about you, but I believe the part of the Bible where it says when Jesus comes back, we'll receive a redeemed body. The Bible says that we've received the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, the first fruits of our redemption. We don't have uh, in experience. We have it in potential. But we don't have in experience of complete redemption yet because we don't have our redeemed bodies. But what does first fruits of the Spirit mean? When you get to heaven, are you going to have more of the Holy Ghost than you have now? We're going to walk into the throne room of God and he's going to say, well, finally you're here. I'm able to give you everything I've got. The Bible says you're completing him now. You're not going to get more of the Holy Ghost when you get to heaven. Now, without a doubt, we'll gain greater understanding. The Bible says we will see as we are seen and and know as we are known. We will see him like he is. What does that mean? That means the limitations of our flesh, the resistance and the barriers that keep us, or at least try to keep us by the work of the devil from renewing our minds to the word of God will fall away. But that's not a product of the soul or a function of the soul. That's a result of the fallen flesh that we live in. In other words, the reason that those things will fall away and we'll have complete understanding and see it with open eyes. Paul said, Now we see through a glass darkly. He said, Now we see through glasses like smoky, smoked glass or tinted glass or something like that. It's hard to make out details. You can see through it, but it's hard to make out details real clearly. He said, That's what it's like looking through now. But when we get to heaven, We'll see as we are seen and know as we are known. We will see him like he is. What causes that glass darkly to fall away? We have our redeemed bodies. So redemption is both spiritual and physical. We haven't received the, the, the fullness of our redeemed body yet. We won't get that until Jesus comes back to the church in what's known as the rapture. So what could the first fruits of the spirit be? But if, if, if um, redemption, the eternal redemption that Jesus purchased for us with his own blood is both spiritual and physical, then the first fruits of the Holy Ghost is healing. Because when you get to heaven with your redeemed body, healing will no longer be necessary. Healing is not a part of heaven because sickness doesn't exist. Once you receive your redeemed body, there will never be another attack of sickness against you in your, for the rest of eternity. So the fact that redemption is both spiritual and physical. And the fact that the Bible says we have received the first fruits of the spirit. The only first fruits that could possibly be for a redeemed body is healing. For the physical body we have now. Are you out there? Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament type of atonement. And time and time and time again. In every case that they in every situation where it's detailed and described. The Old Testament day of atonement was a day of healing. The Passover was a day of healing. Jesus was the fulfillment of both of those types. For both the forgiveness of man's sins... And the healing of his physical body. Now God's made provision for us to receive healing through the laying on of hands. He's also made provision for us to receive healing through a number of other ways. There are many different ways that you can minister healing to people. But one of the best and easiest ways is just to accept right where you are. The finished work of Jesus. Jesus. You know as well as I do that if someone was here that was unsaved, they could get saved sitting in their seats. They wouldn't have to wait to go to the prayer room. They wouldn't have to wait for an altar call. They could simply hear that Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead for their sins. And they could, sitting there by themselves, say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. And he would. Why? Because Jesus paid the price for man's sin. It's already done. You don't have to pray some special prayer. You don't have to have a pastor or some special minister to pray some kind of prayer that, that unlocks the work that Jesus has already done because it's already done. The same thing's true for healing. As Jesus said, which is easier to say? Receive forgiveness of sins. Receive healing for your body. Jesus said that you would know that, you, that the one and the same, the power is the same for both. He said to the sick of the palsy, get out and take your bed. You can do the same thing. People can be healed just by hearing the word of God, coming to the realization, the truth that Jesus fulfilled the atonement that brings that brings physical healing, just like it brings forgiveness of sins, literally the redemption from sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we receive you as our Savior because you shed your precious blood for our sins, but you shed that same blood for our sickness. So we receive you as our healer. We thank you, Lord, that in the finished work, the substitutionary work of Jesus, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Surely that's already been done. What he bore, we need not bear. What he took, we need not take. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're our healer. Just as much as you're our Redeemer where sin is concerned, you're our Redeemer where sickness is concerned. Thank you, Lord, that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.